from Leviticus chapter three, uh, 23, and we're starting in verse 26 and reading to um, verse 32. So Leviticus 23, starting in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement. Make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever, throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening. From evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. Morning, Chapel Street. Morning to the people online. Let's just bow our heads again and just come before our great God in heaven and pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, Lord, we do come before you now desiring to hear you speak to entreat our hearts, Lord, to something of your glory, your magnificence, your love, the great sacrifice through your Son. Lord, I pray that you would cause this dumb ox to stand to one side and speak clearly to us all. Lord, that we would leave here changed, reformed, born again, encouraged, ready to go out into the world, into this week that you have for us. I pray these things in Jesus. Amen. Well, about, I think, November last year, um, the leadership team and Dave and myself got together to create what was called, I think, a strategy for 2020. And of course, none of us knew that COVID would be here and that we'd be in the situation we're in now. But the idea behind that strategy, which was published, was simply to work out what we were going to preach and what events and we might be involved in in terms of evangelism, how we might run Bible studies, and basically look at growing us as a body. One of the things that was brought to that meeting was a question, what things must we preach on each year? What a great question. What must we preach? And so there are a load of things in the course of the year that are things that we must preach. And today is one of them, the Day of Atonement. So we're taking a couple of weeks break from our study in Ephesians, specifically to look at a couple of things 
around the festivals in the autumn in the Jewish calendar. And so today's is the Day of Atonement. And today is actually the Day of Atonement, or at least tonight, it starts in the evening. Yom Kippur, as it's called in the modern era. And uh, so it's, it's fitting that Dave has planned for a message on the Day of Atonement on the Day of Atonement. <laughs> so hopefully that adds something to it. Although the way it will be practiced tonight and tomorrow is very different to the way it was practiced in the Old Testament. Understanding the atonement is in a sense the key to understanding Christianity. If you don't understand the atonement, and of course it's huge, so we can never fully understand it, but if we don't understand it, we don't really understand Christianity. There is a period in the church where the atonement wasn't preached on, and there are reasons for that. The church, through its history, seemingly started to obscure it, and during the Reformation, um, it was re-established. What we call penal substitutionary atonement was re-established as a central tenet and doctrine of the faith. And today, there would you believe this, are many churches that refuse to preach it. There are many churches that don't believe it. There are churches that don't believe it's in the Bible, in the New Testament at all. The uh, movement, which is called the Emergent Church, is one of those. And I ask you to be very careful about what you hear on the internet, particularly, but in different churches, especially when they drop what is a central doctrine to Christianity. If you misunderstand atonement, then you'll misunderstand Christianity. And today, we've got just this, I'm going to say 30 minutes or so, to learn about it and try and understand a little bit more. And I pray that you do not go away today without understanding the atonement. It's critical to get it right. Now, if I ask the question, what is man's greatest problem? What is humankind's greatest problem in this world? You might come up with lots of things. You might say poverty. Um, you might say starvation. You might say greed. There might be lots of things you come up with, but in actual fact, man's greatest problem today is sin, is death, and is judgment. Humankind's greatest problem is that he is a sinner. She is a sinner. Does not please God. So death comes. And after death, Comes judgment. It is extremely serious. It couldn't be more serious, could it? Sin, death, judgment. But fortunately, God has provided a way to deal with that. So if that's our greatest problem, what's our greatest need? Well, obviously, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Otherwise, this sin and this death and this judgment are not going to bear well on us. The atonement is the thing that brings forgiveness. Without the atonement, there is no forgiveness. And the Old Testament, the word for atonement, which is kafar, is mentioned more than a hundred times. And every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in some way to link it 
to covering for sin. The word literally means to cover, to cover something up. There is actually no English word for atonement. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, how can I say the word atonement if there's no English word for atonement? But the word atonement is actually just two words put together. It literally is at one moment. And that doesn't really carry the weight of what atonement is. The word atonement does not even exist in the New Testament. You might say, well, how can you give a message on it if that's the case? Well, the word doesn't exist, but the concept is on every page. Penal substitutionary atonement. There is a penalty that needs to be paid. A fine, if you will, in just modern vernacular. It needs to be atoned for. It needs to be covered. It needs to be paid. And there needs to be someone or something paying for it. Something that stands in our place, something that is substituted for us. And that something needs to be innocent. It needs to be in some way spotless. And in the Old Testament Day of Atonement, that sinless spotless something is an animal or series of animals. But in the New Testament, that sinless, spotless something is a man, is God himself. And it needs a life to be sacrificed. It needs a life to shed blood. The Old Testament sacrificial system of atonement is one that was repeated every year. Sacrifices were made for sin every day. The Day of Atonement happened once a year, today. The New Testament sacrificial event that brings atonement happened once. They're quite different. They're absolutely linked. If you don't know or understand something of the finished work of Christ on the cross, atoning, paying for your sins, covering and bringing glory to God by vindicating his character and upholding the law, then you don't actually know what's really going on on the cross. We can use words about the cross all the time, but if we don't understand how it works to the degree that we're able in scripture, then we miss it. Atonement pays the legal bill for your sins. You can't do it. Don't even try. The whole world is trying to do it in one way or another or ignoring the fact that it's needed. You need something or someone holy to pay for something unholy. You take something unholy and say, let's pay for our sin with something unholy, it just makes the whole situation worse. If you start with the wrong blueprint to build something like an aeroplane, then it will never be good. It's the wrong blueprint. It's the wrong place to start. So listen up. Pay attention. Because this could be the most important 30 or 40 or 50 
minutes of your life, hopefully not that long. So let's start by understanding what the Old Testament Day of Atonement is. Let's get our head around that. And Sandy read for us that passage in Leviticus 23, which actually has its source in Leviticus 16. Now it's big, it's complex, and uh, there's lots of nuances to it, lots of subtleties to it that we'll probably skip over. So I'd ask you to do your own study on this as well. But I'll try and pull those things together for us to break it down a bit. <clears throat> In simple terms, it's a day that was instigated by God and it was given to Moses and Aaron back in the wilderness when they had the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that was made and prepared by God. And latterly, people, the Jews, the Israelites, came to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement to take part in it. It's their festival. It's their um, holy convocation. It's holy meeting of people. And their job, if you will, their part was to afflict themselves, was to humble themselves, was to be contrite about the sins or really the sinful nature that they have that drives sin in their lives. The priests make a sacrificial offering, the high priest especially, for atoning, covering for sins, for sacrifice for sins. The temple, where all this stuff happens, is also cleansed by part of this process that's very important because it's defiled by people, sinful people, whether they're priests or not, engaging in it. Blood is shed, blood is sprinkled, and in blood is life. You might say, well, what's the deal with the blood? There's a lot of blood in a sacrificial system in Israel. Well, the deal with blood is quite simple. And it, I take Leviticus 17, the Lord says that Leviticus, Leviticus 17, 11, he says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. So there's this idea that blood represents life. And we all know that without blood coursing through our veins, we don't live. He says, and I have given it to you for, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement, atonement by the life. There's the link. Blood, life, sacrifice, atonement. A life pays for lives, for sins. It's the idea that gives, us, give up, gives up its blood for another, atones for it. New Testament says in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But this is necessary. This is essential. The other thing that happens on the Day of Atonement is people don't do any work. It's a Sabbath for them. And in fact, if you went to Israel today, you wouldn't get in because the airports are closed. No one's on the streets unless they're going to a synagogue. They do no work. It's true, they close the airports. It's a holy convocation. And if they don't attend with an affliction, with a, a sense of humility, in confession of their sins, they're actually cut off, which is a euphemism for they're put to death. It's really, really serious. So 
we try and unpack it a bit more. Leviticus 16, uh, we won't go through it, but I'm just going to summarize, if I can, what happens. So this is a gathering once a year. The Levitical priesthood, the high priest, is the person that works on behalf of the people to bring the sacrifice to God. There's a lot of washing. He needs to cleanse himself. He washes before, he washes during, and he washes after. And he wears special clothes. He changes into special high priestly clothes. He cannot go into the place where the altar is in the temple, which is known as the most holy place or the holy of holies, without cleansing himself, sacrificing, and creating a sort of cloud of incense. And the cloud of incense is the idea that if you're going into the presence of God, you're going into the presence of his glory and you will be burnt up in a second because of his holiness. So this cloud is meant to in some way obscure the bright light of God's glory to allow you to go in and minister, administer these sacrifices. The high priest, I should mention that on the high priest's clothing, there's a, there's a breastplate and it's got precious stones on it. On each, there's 12 stones and on each stone is the name of each of the tribes, one of the tribes of Israel. And on his shoulders, as if he's sort of carrying the weight or the burden of Israel, are two stones. And they've got all the names, six on this side and six on that side of the 12 tribes of Israel. He goes in with this picture of going in for the people with this sacrifice. He acquires a bull. A bull is the most uh, valuable livestock in Israel. Think about the reasons for that. It's, it should be obvious to us. He acquires two male goats and two rams. The high priest slaughters the bull. And he catches the blood from the bull in a bowl. Literally, there's this image of this animal pouring its life out, pouring its blood out into the bowl that the high priest takes into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And he sprinkles it, he dips his finger in it, and he sprinkles it on the altar. And it's on the mercy seat, the place where God is going to gift mercy on the basis of this covering, this atoning work for the sins of the people. And he does that for himself. He sacrifices that bull and brings in that blood for himself. And that picture of him being the representative in Israel is very important. The picture of them being kind of caught up in this. He sprinkles that blood seven times. And then they cast lots for the goats. And they choose the goats on the basis of if you will, random, except that God is sovereign and is choosing which goat is going to get what. And the first goat is sacrificed. And the blood, guess what, is taken into the temple. And something similar happens to the, the bull's blood. It's a sacrifice for the people. And the second goat, which is sometimes known in modern times as the scapegoat, 
has the sins of the people imputed or commuted to it. There's this image of holding the head of that goat. And our sins or the sins of the Israelites are going into that goat. And then that goat is dragged out of the camp or out of Jerusalem. And it is cast out, this picture of sins being pushed away, never to return. Then the rams are sacrificed as burnt offerings for the people. And then the rest of the bull and the goats that are left, they take out the, uh, the fat, and they take that into, the high priest takes that into um, the Holy of Holies, and that's burnt there as well. And what's left of the bull and the goats is taken outside the camp and completely burned up. So it's known as a holocaustic sacrifice. You can understand the resonance in that language. While all this is going on, I should say that the high priest only goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. And this is it, the Day of Atonement. And only he goes in. While all this is going on, the people are afflicting themselves. They're humbling themselves. They're confessing that they are sinners. That by nature... They are sinful and they have committed sins they are completely unaware of, as well as sins that they're aware of. And so what does all this accomplish? This ceremony, this picture, if you will. Well, it accomplishes atonement. <laughs> it covers Israel's sin with a sacrifice. The temple is cleansed from the defilement from sinners and people's sin are covered with a payment. Also make sure that God continues to dwell with them. If they get this wrong and every bit of it has to be done exactly right, there's much more to it than I've um, elaborated on here. If they get it wrong, then God departs from them. It's very, very serious for them. But most importantly, the Day of Atonement upholds God's character. It upholds his nature, his goodness, his power. And most of all, it upholds his law. The law that God gives to the Israelites isn't good because God just says it. It's good because it emanates from his character. It's real. It's not made up. And God is so patient with sinners. But it must be paid for. And the atonement says, God, you matter. Your character matters. To uphold something of your glory really matters. And so we will do this. We will sacrifice this. And so sins are covered. They cannot be seen by God any longer, but they're still there. You see, next year, there's another Day of Atonement, and they do it all again. And the following year, there's another Day of Atonement, 
and they do it again. Can you see the problem with this model? It doesn't resolve the problem. It just postpones it to some degree. It covers the sin, but it doesn't take it away. There's also another picture in this Old Testament sacrifice that's really important. Because it's a picture that promises something greater is going to come. Something better is going to come. The language of the Bible is that it's a shadow of better things that will come. There would be a sacrificial model at some point that would completely satisfy God. It's a kind of ceremonially, ceremonial, I can say that, prophecy of what would be completely fulfilled in Christ. It's a picture. And that's why we need to look at it. Because without it, we won't fully understand what's going on in Christ. And that's why it's important to us as Christians. Now, I mentioned earlier that the word atonement, uh, the Greek version of it at least, is not in the New Testament. It doesn't exist there at all. It's been, as it were, become a, a fuller concept that's explained by other words. And why is that? And I didn't know this. I had to go and check it out. It's, it's a, an odd thing that it shouldn't be there. And the reason for that is that the result of the atonement in the New Testament is different, as I just said, to the old. And so the writers of the New Testament wanted to move forward from the language of the atonement to try and explain and delve into the depths of it more. Consider this, John the Baptist, we all know who he is, is baptizing people in the River Jordan. Does anybody know what for? For the forgiveness of their sins. And the Pharisees come down to find out what's going on. I mean, wouldn't you? What are you doing, John? You're baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins? We have a temple. We have sacrifices. We have a day of atonement that covers sin. You can't baptize people for the forgiveness of their sins. That's absurd. John's response to them is brutal. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. And he says this, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Here's the Lamb of God. There's a man. It's a sacrificial lamb. It's a man. And then he says, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus doesn't cover sin. He removes it. He takes it away. The penalty is gone completely. And so the writers of the New Testament want to move away from this idea of just expressing the atonement with a word that's about covering and move into more detailed words. They want to be more specific about the results of the work of the atonement in Christ. They use words like ransom, buy back, 
these words like redemption, to retrieve a people that are in immense trouble and bring them into freedom. Words like propitiation, where God is, as it were, made happy because he is appeased for his law and his glory is held up as significant and important. We use phrases like purification of sins. We use phrases like Christ offering himself as a sacrifice. Justification, Christ saving us from our sins. Now before we move on, having considered what the Old Testament sacrifice is and the link there to the New Testament, I'm going to ask Clint to come and read our second Bible reading for us from Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and Clint will lead us. So Hebrews 9, verses 11 14. Hear the word of the Lord. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Also, please turn with me to chapter 10, and we'll read verses 1 through 18. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshipers having been once cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest 
stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Thanks very much, Clint. Hebrews suddenly makes sense, doesn't it? You understand it in the context of the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, and you can begin to see and hear that this sacrificial work of Christ, dying on the cross in our place, shedding his blood, is all about the atonement. I've got just four quick things I want to bring to us from these texts, just dipping into them. I commend the whole book of, of Hebrews to you. It's, it's worth getting your head around it. But just four quick things to, to look, at, look at for us and draw some uh, points out for us as Christians. And if we're not Christians here today, for you as well. So point number one then, the problem with the old sacrificial system. The problem with the old sacrificial system. Let's look again at Hebrews chapter 10 and we'll draw it straight out of the text. For since, so Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So there's that picture of the Old Testament being a shadow of some other things that are going to come, which is Jesus, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It doesn't work in terms of making them perfect, in terms of taking sin away. It just covers it. So you've got to go back again and again and again and again every year. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, wouldn't, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was required to be done every year, forever. Between Moses and the time of Jesus, there's around two and a half thousand, I think it's actually 2,600 years or so. And obviously the Israelites went into exile, two different folds, so they weren't always there and the temple was desecrated and they had to rebuild. 
gradually kind of waned in terms of its glory. But basically every year that they were there, they had to go and do the Day of Atonement. But the problem is it didn't take away sins. The value of a spotless, sinless goat, the value of a spotless, sinless bull isn't enough to cover and take away unintentional sins for a year or for life. It's a picture. It's a picture. Point number two. The solution was a new, perfect, valuable sacrifice. Verse 11 of chapter 9, and backwards in the, in the text, but just bear with me. Verse 11, chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, so just pause there for a second. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Christ Jesus is a high priest. That's confusing because he's not a Levite. I'll we'll get into all of that right now. He's from a different tribe, tribe of Judah. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king, he's better in every instance, and he's God. And he's now, or then, he appeared as the high priest. Think of the high priest. What's he got on his shoulders? The names of the tribes of Israel. He's carrying the names of the people of the world now, those that would be saved, to the cross. This high priest has something different about him. Back to the text. But when Christ appeared, verse 11, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, let's pause again. What is the writer saying? Is Jesus as the high priest going into the temple? We know he spent time in the temple. He taught there pretty regularly. But no, the writer's not saying that. He's saying he's not a, a, a man-made tent or a man-made temple. He's saying the temple that this high priest goes into is the Holy of Holies before the presence of his Father. That's amazing. Consider that for a moment. This is all happening on the cross of Christ. Verse 12. He entered once. He just went in once, not every year, for all into the holy places not by the means of the blood of goats and calves. That wasn't going to do it. Well, what did he take? But by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. redemption. Jesus is the great high priest. But unlike a bull or a goat or a ram or a dove, a lamb, his value is infinite. He's God. There is no greater sacrifice available. He's the most valuable being in the cosmos, especially the Son of God. And God is God, right? Trinity, 
three in one, as they say. Jesus is the treasure. God loves his son and he sends him and he comes and he's obedient. The other thing that I want us to notice in verse 12, it's his blood, it's his life, and it secures something. It secures redemption. There's atonement. But not just redemption, it secures it eternally. Jesus only had to go in once because he's so valuable that he pays for it all eternally. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctifying for the publication of, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Well, the sacrifice was everything. It was everything. It produces an eternal redemption. So, point number three. What's the result? Well, the result is absolute victory over sin and death. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, every day. And at the Day of Atonement as well, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They can cover them, but they can never take them away. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his for sins, our sins, he sat down the right hand of God. Why did he do that? Well, because the work was finished. He didn't need to go back into the Holy of Holies, and sacrifice himself again. The work was finished. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In the atonement, there is also a picture of the second coming that doesn't fulfill the atonement, but it allows us to fully experience the atonement. Now we believe in this. We believe in Christ. Then we will experience, in the fullest sense, redemption reconciliation, peace, the effect of ransom. We will know what atonement feels like, so to speak. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a great verse. He's perfected us by this single offering of himself for all time, but you're being sanctified. <laughs> That's amazing. He's perfected us but we're actually being sanctified. That's the power of atonement. That's the certainty of God's work in us who believe in Christ. And again, the second coming, we will know that. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The priests offer sacrifices every day. It never took away sins. Christ came as a high priest and he offered the sacrifice of himself, his blood, his life for all time, for our sins, commuted to him 
just like a scapegoat, and he sat down because he'd finished the work. It's penal substitutionary atonement. There's a penalty. Someone needs to pay it. Christ, the high priest, the perfect, spotless, infinitely valuable Lamb of God is the one who pays it. He's your substitute. You need him. Christ's atonement is not a covering. It's the removal of sin's effect. Sin has no power over you. Remember man's biggest problem? Sin, death, judgment. But guess what? It's not a problem. If you know Christ. If you follow Christ. If you trust him. It's the final payment, isn't it, for sin? It doesn't need to be done again. It upholds the glorious nature of God in making the full and final payment to God and vindicating God. But Jesus is all about the Father. He's all about bringing glory to the Father. And John, he, he, just before his, his final kind of days, before he goes to the cross, he says, my hour has come and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? This is the reason I came, to glorify the Father. And he says to the Father, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have, and I will do again. Jesus is going to the cross to say, God's law matters. God is beautiful. Fit those two concepts together. He's glorious. And all this happens on the cross. This is what the cross is all about. Listen to a few other verses from the New Testament and the Old Testament. Galatians 3.13, we're living under a curse. The curse is the law. It judges us. God's going to judge us according to it. And Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed, there's the atoning word, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it, Paul? By becoming a curse for us, by shedding his blood for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Isaiah 53, verse 5. You, you could read the whole of 52 and 53 for this. But here it says, he was pierced. Nails went into him for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace to us, and with his wounds we're healed. First Peter 2.24, he, Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Second Corinthians 5.21, I just love these verses. For our sake he made him to be sin. He made Jesus to become sin. And he was the one who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And lastly, Colossians 2, 14. Listen to this. God cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, he put away forever, nailing it to the cross. 
penal substitutionary atonement. It's the gospel. This is why it's so important. Christ says several things from the cross, and one of the things he says just before he dies is, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai. It's in a particular tense known as the aorist tense that only appears in Greek. We don't have that in our own language, and it means it only needs to be done once, forever. It's complete. It's absolute. Jesus says it's finished. My work's finished. My atoning work on the cross is finished. He dies. And three days later, he's resurrected from the dead. He's victorious and triumphant over sin and over death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Do you want your sins covered and taken away? I do. Goodness knows I, I know I need that. So fourth point, final point. First point, the problem with the old sacrificial system. The second point was the solution was a new, perfect, infinitely valuable sacrifice. The third point is the result is absolute victory over sin and death. And a little verse there is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 following. Check that out. And our last point is... What system of atonement are you going with? What system of payment for your sins are you going to go with? If you don't have Christ's atoning work on the cross for your sins, how will you make atonement? Because you need to. Man's greatest problem is sin, death, and judgment. So how are you going to pay? What are you going to do when you appear in the Holy of Holies before God? If you do not have a covering for your sin or something that's removed the effects and power of your sin, then you will be judged by the Father. That's what the Bible says. It's appointed for a man to live once and then die and be judged. How are you going to do it? Are you going to do it with good works? A lot of the people say that. I'll be good. I'll do good things. I'll try harder. Well, the metaphor that I have for that is it's like a, a well, a bottomless well, and you have these little nuggets of gold. Good things are good, right? They're good. They're of God. But the nuggets of gold, and you're dropping them in every now and again to the well. And your ambition is to fill that well, this bottomless well, with good things to the top. And then God will be pleased with you. That's good works. It's pointless. What about the rotten fruit, fruit that you chuck in there? Plenty of that going in, isn't there? Are you just going to try and be wise and clever, atone for your sacrifices? Are you just going to earn lots of money? Are you going to leave lots of money to charities? Right? Some people do that. They have this idea that if they give away all that they had in life of what was left, but somehow they give it to the church or some other Christian charity, uh, some other charity at all, then it will bode well for them in the next life. That's just shocking. Trying to buy atonement. What a terrible picture. None of these things make any difference to your position before a holy God. Why? Well, because your sin has not been atoned for. Your sin has not been covered. Your sin has not been taken away. Folks, 
You need to trust God for your atonement. You need to trust Christ for your atonement. Trust God in the finished work on the cross of Christ. Christ died for the believer's sins. If you're a believer in Christ today, be encouraged. Christ has died for you. Christ has shed his blood for you. And one day you're going to meet him. What are you going to say? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. If you don't know Christ, then I plead with you like the Jews in the Old Testament coming to the Day of Atonement when the sacrifice is happening, afflicting and humbling themselves, I plead with you to come to the cross, to sit under the, the work of Christ that brings salvation because of the atoning work that is finished and confess your sins. Come to the cross and see what you're like and see what he's like. And say, Lord, have mercy on me. I can see that I need you. And ask for forgiveness. And you know what he does if you ask forgiveness? He says, I've paid your debt. Come in and follow me. What system of atonement are you going to go with? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, what can we say but thank you for your son? Thank you, Lord, for the man that is Jesus, that is God, who felt it was not robbery to be found equal to God because he was God, but emptied himself, became a man, and humbled himself even to the point of death even death on the cross. Lord, help us to understand it. Help us to understand the cry from the cross, tis finished. Help us, Lord, to come to you, to confess, to know you, to walk in that manner worthy of the calling of the gospel, of atonement. Help us to see that the great day of atonement has been met by your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>